Well, good morning. Man, it's so good to be here as we're launching this new series. I hope if you're visiting with us today, it's a blessing. Even though this is what I would call an in-house conversation, we're going to be talking about the book of Philippians, kind of look at it. What does it mean to be like Christ? This book is fascinating to me. So the, the book Philippians is written to the church that's located in the city of Philippi. Philippi was a city created by a guy named Alexander the Great. You may have heard of him, right? Alexander the Great's dad was Philip of Macedon II, I believe, if I'm saying that right. Historically, some history teacher out there is ready to tell me I'm crazy, but I think that's right. And he conquered the city of Thrace. He gave it to his son. His son changed the name to Philippi and Philippi became this major Roman colony in the New Testament period. And so Paul takes the gospel there and this church starts to take off and we learn all kinds of amazing things through the book of Philippians and through the Bible about this little town. It's not little at all. It's a major metropolitan area in that time and how the gospel thrived there. And one of the things we see consistently in Paul's life in Philippi in where we're going to be today is that Paul is constantly intentional in what he does with his life. Paul never wastes a moment. And here, this reality came to me uh, years ago. I was sitting at a conference for, for youth ministers, and this guy got up on stage and he said, youth ministers, youth pastors, I want you to understand something. All of the time you put into your sermons won't mean a lot if you aren't putting equal amount of time into the people you're serving because people will not remember your sermons. They will remember your life. And I thought, well, he just isn't as good a preacher as I am. So I started testing this. I started testing it. I started going to the students I was working with. Like, hey, can you remember like the last 10 sermons I preached? Like, can you, what were they about? Uh, uh, there's the one where you told the story about the thing. And then there was that other time where you told us not to mess around with our girlfriends. And then, what? Now, I will say, by the way, my favorite student of all time, he wasn't until this moment. He actually could remember 18 of the 25 last messages in detail. Now, he also went off and was a genius and went off to like one of those Cal Polytech schools or whatever. But it doesn't matter. I succeeded with one kid. Here's why that's important. There's a realization, a realization for all of us, parents especially in the room, right? The words you speak seem to go in one ear, not the other, don't they? There will be massive portions of today's message you will never remember 10 years from now. I'm humbled, but I'll get over it. However, what people do remember is your life. So here's a quick test. Can you remember the last 10 messages you heard and what they were about in detail or in any tale? Probably not. Do me a favor, just say yes, but probably not. But can you remember 10 people who had a significant impact on your life? Can you remember the person who led you to faith in the Lord if you are here as a believer? Can you remember that teacher in that Bible study you were a part of, whether you were a kid or whether it was last year? Do you remember the name of the pastor or the preacher at your first church or your second church or your third church? Can you remember the name of the author of the book you read that when you read it that one time it just changed your life? Can you remember the song the name of the song that you sung, that just when it came to you in that critical moment, it impacted you in a significant way. See, we remember lives that are poured out. We remember significant moments. We remember things like that. And so it's important for us as we gather as a body to, to not just consume information. Paul actually says that information puffs up. Why? Because the more we learn, the more proud we become about all that we know. But Paul says, you know what really changes the church? Love. Love builds up. 
So what we want to do is not just seek to know more, but we want to seek to learn how to love better with what we know, how to take what we know and turn it into love. And that's really where we're going to be today. So I want you to open up your Bible with me to the book of Acts, chapter 16, Acts chapter 16. If you don't know where that is, no worries. All of it's going to be here on the screen, and you can download our app right now in any of your app stores, whatever phone or device you use. You can download the app in there and uh, just follow along. In fact, I have all my notes in there. You can read ahead and see if this message is interesting or not, one you want to remember, or if not, you can you know, do something else. Words with friends. Just kidding. All right, Acts chapter 16. <clears throat> now, here's the launch of the church in Philippi. I'm going to read this. We'll stop. We'll teach. We'll go. Hopefully, today's message will be very helpful. It'll be one of those 10 you'll remember for the rest of your life. Let's see. Paul, verse 1, Paul first went to Derby and then to Lystra. I'll show you some of these on a the map in a little bit. Stick with me for now. They're cities in ancient, um, the Greco-Roman world. Where there was a young disciple named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish believer and his father was a Greek. Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. So Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. In deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left. Timothy changed his mind and decided not to go with Paul. <laughs> if I were writing this story and I were Timothy, that might be how it sounded. For everybody knew that his father was a Greek. Now let's just stop here before we continue on. And you're like, why in the world is this kind of stuff in the Bible? It's fascinating. Well, there's actually a huge reason why. Here's what's going on. So one of the major ways that a Jewish person identified themselves was by circumcision. Somebody asked me this great question the other day. So how exactly did Jewish people know that they were circumcised? And I said, I don't know, but don't Google it. That's all I know, all right? But in this situation, it's obvious that Timothy might not be circumcised because his dad was a Greek. It was very clear for... for uh, people of the Jewish faith, that they were not supposed to marry outside of their race. Not because God's a racist, but because he wanted them to stay focused on God. And since the Israelites, the Jewish people, were the people of God, it was safe to assume that they had God's laws, at least taught to them, if not embraced. But Timothy's mom was married to a man who was not a believer. So he was kind of half and half. But this is what's really fascinating. Go back a chapter, Acts chapter 15. And the whole reason Acts chapter 15 exists is because Paul keeps going to these churches. And we'll look at these on a map in a moment. But Paul keeps going to these towns, planting churches in Antioch and all these other places. And when he plants these churches, the gospel starts to thrive. But what happens is these Jewish converts, especially these Pharisee converts, are getting in the way of the gospel. So they're coming in after Paul or while Paul's still there, and they're saying, okay, great, you Gentile believers, you're believing in our God. Now you need to do what we do. So you need to follow these ceremonies. You need to go through these religious rites, and one of them is circumcision. And Paul is fed up because these Jewish converts to the faith are getting in the way of the Gentiles accepting Jesus. And it makes sense, right, men? I mean, if somebody came to you and says, Jesus died for you, Jesus loves you, he saved you from the wrath of God, he wants to give you life, now let's go get circumcised. You might go, <laughs> was there a plan B? So Paul and Barnabas, who he's traveling with, they go to Jerusalem and say, it's time to put an end to this. And they gather together the elders in Jerusalem, and among them are two very famous guys, a guy named Peter and a guy named James, who wrote the book of James. 
The other James is dead. There's two James. James, the half-brother of Jesus, James, the apostle. James, the apostle, has already been run through with a sword. So we're the half-brother of Jesus, James, who's a leader in the New Testament church. And this long conversation unfolds between the elders of the gathering, and they're arguing about it. Well, hey, we've had to do this for years. The Gentiles should have to do this. Look, God almost took it out on Moses' sons because Moses went back into Egypt and didn't have his son circumcised. Remember that? This has gone on for generation after generation after generation. This is a big deal. This is the marker. This is what physically sets us apart. And after this whole conversation unfolds, finally, Peter stands up and he says, brothers, brothers, this isn't a direct quote, it's close. Brothers, come on. You haven't followed the law perfectly, have you? Why would we make it any harder for the Gentiles who are coming to faith in Jesus to believe in Jesus? Let's not impose on them rules and regulations that we ourselves have struggled to keep. Let's not impose on them any more rules than are needed. And then they tell Paul, Paul, we want you to go back and here's what you're needed to tell the churches. Basically, they're only to keep three rules, these Gentile believers coming to faith in Jesus. Three things. Number one, tell them to avoid, some translations say fornication. Some, most of you are like, I don't even know what that means. Tell them to avoid any sexual immorality. Not to be saved, but because God has saved them. Tell them to avoid uh, eating food, meat that's been strangled and with blood in it. That's basically an idol worship issue. And tell them avoid food sacrificed to idols. Basically, avoid anything that has to do with demonic worship and avoid sexual immorality. Those are the only two rules. So no more following the ceremonies. No more following the ceremonies. No more offering of animals to, to, for the sacrifice. Nope, Jesus is the final sacrifice. No more following these festivals. Nope, no more following the festivals. If you want to do it, great. You don't have to. No more circumcision. That's right. No more circumcision. Paul and Barnabas, who are partners, get in a big fight at the end of Acts chapter 15. And it says in the New Living Translation, they had a sharp disagreement. This is important because Barnabas takes John Mark, who wrote the book of Mark, and they go off and Barnabas pours into John Mark to restore him. John Mark has fallen away. And Paul goes off and he grabs a new partner. His name is Silas. And that's where we started in Acts chapter 16. Paul's grabbed Silas, and now they grab Timothy. And the very first thing Paul says to Timothy is, it's time for you to get circumcised. Now, if I'm Timothy... And I'm paying attention. I'm going, no, wait a minute, Paul. Didn't you just show up in my town and tell all of us that none of us had to do this anymore? I mean, like, isn't there another way? Isn't that fascinating at all? I mean, Paul's either the biggest hypocrite of all time or there's a reason. Take a look at the rest of this. Verse 4. Then they went from town to town, instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. What in the world is going on? Well, here's what you need to know. Paul intentionally invested in future leaders. So when Paul shows up and he grabs Timothy, he basically says, give me your youngest and your brightest. Paul just lost John Mark because John Mark had fallen and Paul didn't trust him anymore. Paul needed somebody else to mentor. So Paul takes Timothy and says, I'm going to teach you everything you need to know. In fact, later in one of his books, Paul calls Timothy his spiritual son. He literally looks at him as a dad does to a son. He wrote two books to him later, First and Second Timothy. That's where those come from. He's going to pour his life and his heart into Timothy. But what Paul is doing in Timothy is teaching Timothy to invest in future leaders. That's what Paul's doing in Timothy. So why does Paul tell Timothy, his new son in the faith, that he needs to be circumcised, even though he doesn't need to be circumcised? 
And the reason Paul does this is because Paul's teaching Timothy everything Paul has learned about the gospel. Meaning this, circumcision has zero effect on your standing with God. But what circumcision will do, Timothy, is it will give you the opportunity to serve God to people who otherwise wouldn't listen. Paul is taking Timothy and he's trying to teach him a really good but hard lesson. And that is, Timothy, there's absolutely nothing that's going to happen in this life that's more important than what the work you're going to do on behalf of the gospel. So, Timothy, I need you to be willing to let, set aside your own desires. Then you just set aside your own plans. And you just set aside your time. Set aside your wants. Set aside your skin. And, Timothy, we're going to go advance the gospel. I love the way William Barclay says this about this situation. He says, it was only natural that Paul should be looking for someone to take Mark's place. That's John Mark. He was always, he, Paul, was always well aware of the necessity of training a new generation for the work that lay ahead. In Timothy, he found just the kind of person he wanted. You may be asking, what in the world does any of this have to do with the book of Philippians? I thought we were talking about Philippians. Well, here's why. Take a look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says this. This letter is from Paul and who? Timothy. And what are they? Slaves of Christ Jesus. Now, why is that important? The word slave in that culture meant something different than it means in our culture. Typically, a slave was somebody who's called a bond servant. A bond servant was somebody who had accrued such a debt that in order to pay off the debt, they had to work for the person they accrued the debt under. Many times, there were bond servants who were doctors and accountants, and people were very skilled, very gifted, very qualified, but they'd accrued such a debt that they literally had to serve the person while they paid off that debt. And Paul is saying, Timothy and I view ourselves in such great debt to Jesus Christ that even Timothy as an adult man is willing to get circumcised for the gospel. That brings a whole new light to that one little verse, doesn't it? He says to them, I am writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders, it's actually the word bishops or elders, and deacons. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Paul starts all of his letters to the churches, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, 1 Timothy even. He starts them all with this similar phrase. And in all of them, he has grace and peace. The only time it's different, by the way, is in his letter to Timothy, he says grace and peace and mercy. He adds that one little word. Now, why is it Paul keeps coming back to these two concepts over and over and over again? I think Jacques Mueller, if I'm saying that right, I don't have an idea if I am. I think he's either French or German or something. He's not English. But anyway, Jacques says it this way. The blessings of grace and peace have their beginnings in God himself as the source of all perfection and good gifts. There is no grace except in God and no real peace except that which flows from God reconciled with the sinner. In other words, what Jacques is trying to say in his book on Philippians, what he's trying to get to is this. The reason grace and peace are so important is because many of you have been looking for peace and you can't find it, right? You could get rid of all your debt. You could pay off your house. You could send your family away to counseling. But the only way to find peace is to reconnect with God because your peace was first lost there. He is the funnel, the filter, the, or the, the, the overflow. As he pours into you and it comes down into you, then peace goes out of your life to other people. 
As God teaches you to forgive, you forgive, you get peace. As God teaches you to be generous, you stop pursuing the things of this world, and then you become more at peace. As you become filled up with him, you start, stop craving things that aren't good for you, and you find peace. But your peace can only first be found when he gives it to you. So Paul says to these churches, grace and peace. And what I want you to take away from this very early part in the book of Philippians is this. What would happen? What would be different? What would change? If we were to share more blessings as a group of people. I think about this. When most people meet Christians, you know what they meet? Condemnation and judgment. They meet us arguing about which politician is the best, as if there's a winner this year. They find us talking about what's wrong in the world today, and there is plenty. One fascinating thing to think about. Do you know when the Bible condemns the way the world is going? Do you know it's doing it in the context of letters that are written to a church? Are you with me? So Romans chapter 1, which Christians, if you know it, <clears throat> you know why it's an important passage. <clears throat> excuse me, for America today. Romans chapter 1 wasn't written to the city of Rome. Romans chapter 1 was written to the church in Rome. It's a book for believers to wrestle with and chew on. It's Paul's way to correct, rebuke, teach the church in Rome. It's not Paul's way to say to the people of Rome what's wrong with Rome. But see, what Christians do is we take Romans chapter 1 and we use it against our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends. What would be different, though, if we were to view ourselves as a one man, as a one woman blessing machine? What would change in your life? As a, instead of every conversation being about correcting somebody who's off in some way, your conversation was more about how do I share a blessing? How do I lead this person into the blessing of God? I am not preaching a health and wealth gospel. Anybody who's been here for any length of time, it's your first Sunday then you might think that. <clears throat> Stay here for many Sundays, you'll quickly hear that is not what I'm about. But I believe that what God is doing in Jesus Christ, I think the New Testament says this clear, he's bringing paradise back into play. So the mission of the church is to bring paradise back to this earth. And part of, yes, paradise has to do with living and walking in the ways of God. That's why um, Paul is giving these marching orders that if you were to come in faith, you're to avoid these things that have to do with demons and idols, but also to avoid sexual immorality. It's not that these things are important. It's just when you lead with that instead of lead with blessing, it's hard to get a hearing, isn't it? And what would change? What would change if every conversation you had this week was full, full of mercy and grace and peace, the same mercy and grace and peace that you desperately need from your father today. Hang on to that thought. We'll dig into that a little more in a little bit. So Acts chapter 16, let's come back to Acts. Let's actually start to see now where this church of Philippi launched. Verse 6, there's a whole fascinating conversation I don't have time to go into today, but I'm going to show you some of this. Next, Paul and Silas, what you need to understand is it's Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy. So next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. What in the world does that mean? Does anybody else find that phrase fascinating? I've taught on this more times than I can count. I still don't have an answer. So Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, they're traveling around. They've gone to the churches they launched to encourage them, and now they're going to launch new churches, and apparently they don't know what they're supposed to do next. They just know they're supposed to launch churches. And so they get to the area of Phrygia and Galatia. I'll show you this on a map in a moment. And when they get there, the Holy Spirit stops them. How? Did they get like a sudden case of the cramps in their stomach? Did like somebody's 
toe break and they couldn't walk anymore? Did they run out of money? It's not persecution. Paul faces persecution in every city he goes to. How did the Holy Spirit stop them? And it won't tell us. And I think part of the reason it won't tell us is because God won't let you put him in a box. How many of you have ever wondered, what's God's will for my life? Well, did you know that God's not a thing? He's a person. He's real. He's no different than your spouse or your children, except for he's perfect and holy. But relationships don't develop because somebody told you what they thought or believed. Relationships develop because you talked with them, listened to them, communicated with them. Remember this, parents? Rules without relationship almost always lead to brokenness. So think about this here. The Bible records for us the Holy Spirit prevented them, but won't tell us how. And I believe the reason it's true is because God wants you to wrestle with him over what he wants to do in your life. And here's what I know. He won't tell you everything you need to know next, but he'll tell you when it's time for you to know it. So what are you to do? Look at the next verse. Where did I leave off? There we go. Verse 8. So instead, they went through Myasia to the seaport of Troas. What do we make of that? Well, Paul went, okay, the Spirit said, no, we can't go there, so let's keep going. We know that we're supposed to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. We don't exactly know where. God hasn't told us yet. But we're not going to sit around and wait for it. We're going to keep moving forward. Verse 9. That night, I feel like I skipped a verse. I did. Thank you for all of you who are like, you did, idiot. Just kidding. Let's go back and look at the verse I skipped. I think it was verse 7. Then coming to the borders of Asia, they headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. This is the verse I wanted to get to before we got to that one. Go back to verse 7. So this is important. So the Holy Spirit stops at first. The Spirit of Jesus stops at second. So what do we know? God's still not giving him an answer. All we know is he's stopping them twice. Nope, don't go there. Nope, nope, not that one. Nope, don't go there. Now where? So look at verse 9. That night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come, come over here to Macedonia and help us. Now, I don't know what a vision is exactly because I've never had one. I've asked God to give me one. I think it'd be cool, but I don't think he'll give me one because I keep asking him to give me one. Here's what I know about a vision. A vision is like a dream, but usually during the daytime, although it can happen at night, and it feels as real as what's happening right now. It's as if the person's really there. It doesn't feel like a dream. You know, you wake up, you're like, wow, that was weird. Like SpongeBob SquarePants showed up in my dream and I was a minion. I mean, it was like, no, 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 this is real. And Paul has this vision where a person shows up, a man from Macedonia. Somehow there was a, something about this person that clearly defined who he was and where he was from. And he says, come, come and tell us about the gospel. Verse 10. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. Let me just show you real quick what this looks like. Go ahead and put the map up. So this is Paul's second missionary journey. He started all the way down here in Jerusalem where he gets Acts 15. He gets all these rules and he comes up here. He goes and encourages all these churches that he's planted along the way. He started in Antioch. That's his hometown. Stops there. Look, he's Paul's from Tarsus. There we go. And he comes up here. He picks up Timothy. And then now we're in new territory. But when he gets out here to the area of Galatia and Phrygia, the spirit of Jesus stops him. So he goes into Asia and Bithynia. And again, the spirit of Jesus stops him. So he decides to come over here to Troas. Okay, do you realize how much ground that is covered? there without a car most likely this took weeks 
possibly months? Do you know how much travel you have to coordinate and places to stay and food to get? And there's four of you you got to figure it out for, and you can't even pull out your phone on the app and do it ahead of time. Like, what is wrong with this place? And they finally get to Troas, and they have this dream over here somewhere, and they go to Troas and on up crossing the water to Philippi. This is fascinating to me because if you just kind of read your, your Bible, here's what you find. Peter is a lot like your pastor. Probably, if you know disc at all, probably a high eye. He's a little bit of an otter if you've ever looked at like the lion, the otter, the, the golden retriever. He, you know, talk first, think second. That's totally me. That's totally Peter. Paul, I'm guessing, I can't prove it. There's no study that has been done on him yet. I'm guessing Paul's a little type A. And I don't mean type A like if you had a boss or a dad who was type A and you're like, wow, nobody liked that guy. But Paul was kind of that guy and then he became a Christian and God softened his heart. But he's driven. He's constantly going. He's like a lion. He's always strong in personality. He probably has to dial that back a little bit, interaction with other people. How much does this drive a Paul crazy? Any of you high control personalities out there going, are you kidding me? How in the world would we go from point A to point B when we don't know where point B is? And yet God won't tell Paul where to go next. The only thing Paul knows, the only thing Paul knows is Paul is intentionally, he intentionally went to places that did not have Jesus. All he knows. And he's okay with that. Go to places that don't have Jesus. Spread the gospel. What are you going to do when you get there? I don't know. When we get there, we'll figure it out. So take a look. Acts chapter 16, verse 11. We boarded a boat at Troas. And we sailed straight across the, to the island of Samothrace. However you say that. And the next day we landed at Neapolis. From there, we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, and we stayed there several days. So how does Paul deal with being impatient? How does Paul deal with all of this? Well, Paul knows there's a bigger thing going on than simply the timeline in front of him. In Greek, there are a few words that have to do with time, but there are two primary words that have to do with time. There's chronos, and there's kairos. You may notice when you look at chronos, go ahead and put that up, I think you have that slide. When you have chronos, when you look at that, it's where we get our word chronology. Chronos, chronos. It's where we get our word chronology. There are differences in these two words. They mean two different things. Let me show it to you in a Bible verse before I tell you more about them. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 6 for a minute here. So Jesus has died on the cross. He's rose from the dead. He's gathered his disciples. Acts chapter 1 picks up right where Luke leaves off, right where Matthew 28 leaves off. Remember there, Jesus says, I want you to go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. That's what Paul is doing. He's busy making disciples of all nations. And so as uh, Jesus is giving those marching orders, the disciples interrupt him. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Kronos. Now, in this question, there's a whole big theological conversation, doctoral conversation about the end of times we don't have time for now. But what, what they're saying to Jesus is, has this chronological time come? There was the beginning when God made everything, and then we get to Abraham, we get to Moses, we go on down to the prophets, now we have Jesus. Has it come time for everything to be restored yet? Chronologically, are we there on the calendar? Here's Jesus' response, verse 7. Jesus replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates, chronos, and times, kairos, and they are not for you to know, 
Why did Jesus use two different words? Why not just say, the Father alone has set the authority to set those chronos and the chronos? Well, first of all, that would be extremely redundant. But second of all, there are two different words that mean two different things. So part of what's going on here is Jesus is saying, when you're thinking chronologically, guys, about history, you know, there's, uh, there's these, almost these different um, uh, periods of time. There's the way God interacted with Adam and Eve. There's the way God interacted after Noah. There's the way God interacted with Abraham. There's the way God interacted after the law. There's the way God interacted through the kings. There's the way God interacted through the prophets. Now there's a time for God as he's interacting through Jesus. But what you need to know through Kronos is it's in order. But Kairos is not about the qualitative or timeline. It has more to do with the weights of the events we're talking about. So part of what Jesus is saying here is, look, I don't know exactly when in time God's going to say go. Only the Father knows that. No one knows the day or the hour, Jesus says. It's going to come like a thief in the night. One moment, Jesus is going to return. This is why Matthew 24, he says over and over and over again, there's a, there's a master. He goes away for a long time. He left his servants in charge to take care of things for a while. Now, you don't know how long the master is going to be gone, so be ready because he could come back tomorrow. But he might not come back for another thousand years. So be ready at any moment. Be ready in any moment for the important event to take place. Chronological time, important event. Maybe there's a better way of saying this. Chronology would be a fixed quantity of time, chronos. Kairos, it's harder to measure, but I think, I think this would be a good way to say it. Chronos equals chronological or fixed time. Kairos equals God's time. I think that's the best way to say it. Now, is that a technical definition? No, if you go look up a dictionary, Kairos, you're not going to find that. But what Kairos points us to is that there is something going on in the midst of Kronos. In the midst of actual timeline, God knows the beginning and the end, there's something going on. And it's what God is up to in every moment. Let me show this to you through two Bible verses. Jump down with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16. If you're following along in the notes, it says this. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. That's actually the word Kairos. One of the most common translations for Kairos is the word Opportunity. Because it's kind of a, a word that's hard to nail down. It's, it's hard to put it together. So what's going on here? Well, when Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus, what he's saying is, as you're chronologically going about your day, don't forget that everywhere you are, you're there on purpose. So make the most of it. Let me show you one more. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul again writes this. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every kairos. What is Paul trying to get to here? Well, this is the point I want you to make. The reason that Paul can spend his life traveling from city to city, not 100% sure where the next destination is, is because Paul realizes that he's on God's timetable and that every moment is God's moment. And all he needs to do is to seize the moment he's in. You can only live life from moment to moment. You can't jump to next week to get past this thing that you need done tomorrow. You can't. You can't jump to the end of this cancer treatment you're struggling with. You got to go through it. You can't hurry up and get past this period of your life where you're not married and you desperately want to be. You just have to go through it. You can't get to the place where your kids finally respect you because you've been working hard at changing things in your home. Nope, you got to live through it. But while you're living through all of these different moments of life, you can bask in the faith and the grace and in the peace that God is in it. 
And every moment of every day is a glorious opportunity for you to serve God. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi from prison. And later we'll take a look because he says, I may be here in chains, but you know what? It's okay because the gospel is still going forth. And when you read it, you're like, what is wrong with this guy? Like, does he ever get mad about anything? No, because Paul doesn't believe there are accidents. God is sovereign over every kairos of life. So the other day, um, my mom and dad, they bought us this cool like play thing for my kids in the backyard and a bunch of Kingsway people helped me move it. This would be a couple months ago. And a, a Kingsway family here let us borrow their trailer and they helped us load it on the trailer and they came to pick up the, the truck of the trailer, move it all uh, back to their house. And I was helping them outside and my neighbor comes walking down the road and this Kingsway family who's uh, helping me, they recognize each other and they just stop and talk. He's like, oh, hey, I know you, blah, 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 blah. Next thing you know, like my neighbor just starts sharing very, very, very intimate details of his life. And I'm sitting there with my jaw on the ground like, you shouldn't say this. <laughs> I mean, he is giving like very detailed hard stuff, very detailed hard stuff. And we all kind of tried to encourage him and prayed for him, point him to Jesus. You know what I thought? I've been your neighbor five years, and I have no idea you've been going through all this. And when I did notice that your wife wasn't around anymore, not once did I come over to your house and say, hey, you doing okay? I remember about eight or ten years ago, you may have seen this, uh, Kleenex did this amazing commercial. They, um, they put a couch and a camera and, and a chair, like in, in a major city of some sort, put some cameras there. And all you see in the commercial is that they're, they're asking people questions. The next thing you know, people are in front of a camera that's going to be used in a commercial, and they're bawling, and they're handing them Kleenexes. And their marketing department was like, yes, that is marketing gold. And I'm watching this as a pastor going, where's the church? You're telling me there's no Christians in the lives of these men and women who are willing to go on a camera in front of millions and millions and millions of people and ball in a Kleenex in front of a guy they've never met? And there's no Christians seizing the opportunity? There's no Christians around to say, you doing okay? There's no Christians there to say, can I help? And maybe there are. I, I don't know. But I wonder if in your neighborhood or if at your school or at your job, if people are carrying a whole bunch of stuff and they're just secretly wondering if God is even tuning into their lives. And maybe God's prompting you and saying, go, be a blessing in the lives of someone else who needs the gospel. Here's my little takeaway for you. The only way to live in real time is to make the most of God's purpose in every moment of time. You have to live moment by moment. You can't, there's no other way around it. But while you're at lunch today, instead of just assuming you went and got Mexican food at, after lunch, I just subliminally told you all to get Mexican food. <laughs> Why don't you assume that God picked your table and your waiter or your waitress on purpose? Why don't you take a moment and just say, hey, how you doing today? Can I bless you? What would happen if you were actually bold enough to say, everything going okay? How can I pray for you? I, I do this 
all the time. Anybody who hangs around me can, can, can testify to this. I've got plenty of people to back me up because people ask me all the time, Matt, why do people tell you the crazy things they tell you? Like, you don't even know them. I'm like, the only thing I can think is that I ask. I'll be sitting at Starbucks like, hey, you're going to order a drink. Like, you doing okay today? Blah, 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 blah. Really? What's going on there? Can you tell me more about that? I'll, I'll take note of the person's name, and I'll come back later when it's not so busy. Like, hey, I just want to follow up. You know, is there anything I could be praying for? Man, sometimes I get the whoosh. I'm like, need a Kleenex? <laughs> I think people who don't have grace and peace from God are desperately searching for grace and peace. I know because there are days that I am, and I have it. So I wonder again, what would happen? What would happen if we were to become a people of blessing? What would change at your workplace? What would change in your neighborhood? What would change in Hendricks County? And for anybody listening to this, the ends of the earth, what would change? What would change? I want to close out by now showing you how all of this has come together in the city of Philippi. Take a look with me, look with me now. Acts chapter 16, verse 13. They're finally in the city of Philippi, all this hard work to get there. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. Now, let's just stop before I read the rest of this. What in the world is going on here? Paul's uh, model of advancing the church is he would go into a new town, he would look for a synagogue where he could find Jewish people, and he would go and he would reason from them from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who was prophesied, who fulfilled all these hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about Jesus. He would usually start there. He'd usually get a few people who would believe in him and the rest. Some would be curious like the Bereans and have to go look further and some would just get mad because they're saying this Jesus who died on a cross in Jerusalem was the Messiah. There's no way the Messiah could have come and restore Israel to this great powerhouse again. And then after he had taught to the Jews, he would go and speak to the Gentiles in that same town. Except for when he gets to Philippi, there's no synagogue. So Paul, never wasting an opportunity, says, well, since there's no synagogue, let's go down to the river. Maybe we'll find someone there. And what's going on in Paul's mind? Chronologically, Paul's finally arrived. Chronologically, it's time to go to a synagogue. There's none there. But from a Kairos standpoint, Paul realizes God has already been in the city before I got here. God called us here. God placed us here. So somebody in this city is ready for Jesus. God's just waiting on me to step up and say something about it. So he literally finds a couple ladies having a Bible study together. They're sitting down by the riverbank. These are two they're not even Jewish ladies. These are Gentile ladies. Somewhere along the way, they learned about Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. How bold is this? Paul just walks up. Hey, um, can I tell you more about what you're praying about? And what Paul finds out is God was already there, telling the ground for Paul. Here's the rest of what that verse says. He went down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth. 
She worshiped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. I just stopped there for a minute. Wow. First of all, this Lydia, she's not mentioned along with her husband. That could mean that he doesn't ever become a believer. It could mean she's divorced. It could mean she's a widow. It could just mean at this point in the story he's not a believer. She's from Thyatira. That's another little town you can see it on that map that I showed you earlier. But she expel, sells expensive purple cloth. She's actually a merchant. We'll talk more about her as we go. This is not common in that day like it might be today. She's a business owner. And she is probably a very wealthy business owner. And she listened to Paul. God opened her heart and she accepted See, most of the time when it's our job to share our faith and tell somebody and bless them with the good news of Jesus, we think like, I have to have all the answers. Because if I don't have all the answers, they might not accept. But what we find out here is God's already doing the work before you get there. You just have to trust that God's already doing the work before you get there. God's already prepping. God's already planning. God's already stirring. And then look at what she does next. Maybe what some of you need to do today. She and her household were baptized. And she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. This is so important because what you will see, if you track back from church history, and I got plenty of books to show this to you, this little conversation with a woman by a riverbank who sells expensive purple cloth completely allowed you and me to sit here today. And you're like, wow, that's a bit overstating it. Oh, no. See, this one lady was significantly responsible for paying for Paul's ministry. We see throughout the Gospels, she gives generously from what she has so that Paul could keep spreading the Gospel. And if Paul doesn't ever make it to Philippi and meet her, then Paul doesn't have all the funding he needs to do all that God has planned for him. And because Paul took the gospel to Macedonia, it was the Macedonian churches who paid for Paul to take the gospel beyond Macedonia, where it ended up in this area we call today Europe, who roughly 300 years ago sent some pilgrims to a country you know as the United States of America, who planted churches all over this great land. Because one woman said yes. Tell me the next conversation that you have planned isn't an important one. Because you don't know who the next Lydia is. In fact, here's a good question. Who is in your life that you just feel like God has been prompting you this entire message to share the gospel with? Do you have a name? When you came in today, you were handed uh, a little card. Looks like this. Go ahead and take that out real quick. Here's my challenge to you today. On the front side where it says the journey, it says, I am praying. God provides the opportunity for me to share Christ with these people. You'll see blank lines. That doesn't mean you get to pray for nobody. Your job is to fill this in. You can write down one name, two names, three names, five names. If we didn't give you enough lines, get another card. 
We have plenty of them at this table. Right when you walk out here, you'll see a little journey poster there. You just go to them. You can ask them any question you want about what we're doing in this block. They could tell you more than I had time to tell you in this message. They can give you more of these cards. And I want you to commit every day, starting today, not tomorrow, every day, today, you're going to pray for the names you wrote on this card. Tomorrow, you're going to pray for the names you wrote on this card. Next day, next day, every day for seven days. And here's what you're going to pray. Go ahead and flip it over to the back. You can pray any prayer you want. You can add to this. You can subtract from this. I just wanted to give you something to guide you. And here's what it says. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity, Kairos, to share your love with others. Please, today, bless, fill in the blank there. And meet their needs in such a powerful way that they will know it was beyond themselves or just an accident. God, I ask that you would open the door for me to share your mercy and kindness with them. Help me to be bold enough to see and to seize the opportunity when you do. In Jesus' name, amen. You're going to pray that little prayer for every person. How long would that take you? A minute? Maybe two minutes. You can expand on this. You can shrink this. You're just going to say, God, would you just show up? Would you just do something amazing? God, if they're experiencing stress in their home, God, would you bring peace? God, if they're experiencing financial burden, would you just bring a blessing out of nowhere? And God, when you move me, when you create the opportunity for me to talk to them, and you're going to say, man, I've been praying for you ever since last Sunday, and they're going to go, you have? Oh, man, God's been answering your prayers. Now, here's the question. Believer, believer, I realize for some of you visiting, this doesn't apply. Do you actually believe God's going to answer your prayers? Do you believe that God actually wants this to happen? Now, see, some of you struggle because you go, why, why would God bless a sinner? He blessed you. He blessed me. God wants to bless sinners. That's what Jesus does. So ask God to move in such a way that it's so clear it wasn't an accident. It's so clear it wasn't just happenstance. It was so clear it was God. And then you look for a way to connect that dot and say, look, look, look what God did. Look what God did. Look how he brought us together. And you're not going to do anything yet. You're just going to pray for them every day this week. And I'll tell you more about what we're going to do next, starting next week. But I do want to throw this out real quick. What we're going to do throughout this series is we're going to challenge you a little more, a little more, a little more each week. We're going to challenge you to go a little bit more uncomfortable, a little bit more uncomfortable. I just want to be honest up front. Everything we talked about today, by the end of the series, you're going to be practicing it and taking part in it. But one of the things we're going to do is on October 27th, October 27th, we're going to have a, just a fun Kingsway night. We're going to be bringing out a couple comedians. We're going to just have a great night together for a couple hours here at Kingsway. But here's the catch, and we'll talk about this more as we go. You're only allowed to come. You're only allowed to come if you bring a friend with you. So you're like, oh, that's kind of a setup. Well, it is for you. We just want them to come and laugh, have a good time, and be blessed. That's all we want. This is not Kingsway night. There's only enough as we can fill this room with. There's going to be uh, roughly 1,200 people. We're only going to sell 1,000 tickets. I'll tell you more about what we want to do with the rest later. But you're just going to bring your friends. Only 500 of you are welcome, and it's the 500 of you who want to bring someone with you. So start praying for them. Start praying that God would open the door. Start praying that God would give you the opportunity to just be a blessing to the people in your lives. In fact, we're going to practice that right now. What we're going to do in just a moment is we're going to go to communion. Some of you, this is your opportunity to engage with God. Man, you got something, you need to do some business with him. Some of you, today's the day, like Lydia, you're ready to receive Jesus. You don't have to wait to be baptized. I mean, she did it right away. She went home, told her family, her family received Christ, they got baptized right there, right then. Why wait? And in just a moment, while we're taking communion, you can come down here and go to my left, your right, and go into that screen. We got people ready to talk to you. The people who are leaving right now are going to prepare communion. You don't have to worry, I didn't offend anybody yet. I'll get there. I'm just kidding. But what 
I want you to do right now is not spend communion praying for you unless you really got something big you need to deal with. What I want you to do is begin this prayer of blessing over some of those people that God has placed on your heart. Pray for those far from God in your life. Grace and peace. Let's pray. I'll start the prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, as we come into your presence to celebrate communion, this is a celebration of grace and peace. This is a celebration of your goodness and your mercy over us. The fact that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. You blessed us before we were even on the scene sinning. Thank you. Oh, God, thank you. And Father, I just pray right now for the names that you're bringing to our minds as we lay out these prayers. Would you move in such a profound way? Connect the dots, God, that when we show up, it's so clear you've been blessing them and moving ahead of our being there. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.